Ah, I love love. I think Cinderella is this incredible story. And oh, the ending just, oh. When I, when I thought about the story, I watched a little bit of the video. I'm like, this is kind of old. But still, you know, it captured me. There's something amazing about it. And, uh, you know, getting to youth ministry for so long, I have so many young people in my social media feed, and everyone's getting engaged. You know, the new thing now is when you get engaged, you hire professional photographers to capture the whole moment. And so the pictures are just mind-boggling. I get to go to a couple weddings this summer. I'm like, oh. I love love. It's so good, right? And Cinderella, and I think there's this thing in us, in the very core of our being, that we all want to live happily ever after. It's like the dream, and there's something beautiful about a wedding where it's like, yes, happily ever after. But if you know anything about the story of Cinderella, you know that it's a wild story. Cinderella, right, her, her, uh, her mom dies when she's a little kid. Her dad remarries. Her dad dies, and she becomes a slave to, uh, to her stepmom. And, and she just leads this awful, awful life. And she's beautiful, and, and that's nice and stuff. But even a beautiful slave has a hard time getting somewhere. And, uh, and, and who's the person who changes everything for her? The fairy godmother. Right? Without the fairy godmother, Cinderella's story goes nowhere. But there's this old woman who shows up in her life and changes everything. Right? It's incredible. And, um, and, and I think all of us want to have this happily ever after. In fact, if I ever get to do a wedding again, I'm going to, there's all these great wedding uh, passages like in 1 Corinthians and and Ecclesiastes, but in Ruth, there's this great wedding passage and it says this. This is Ruth chapter four. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. (sighs) Amen. And they all lived happily ever after, right? Art's wondering, where are you going with this? Well, well, what's interesting, like, this is an awesome. Ruth is the, like the best happily ever after story ever. There's this beautiful woman. She marries Boaz. They have a baby. And in fact, that baby becomes the great, uh, they, uh, the great, great grandchild of them becomes King David. It's this incredible story. But if anyone who knows anything about the story of Ruth, Ruth actually goes nowhere unless there's a faithful old woman in her life named Naomi. And Naomi is the one who cares for Ruth, who leads the way for Ruth, who helps Ruth figure out how to navigate this land and this world and navigate some love and ends up landing Boaz. And so for this morning, for this Mother's Day, I thought, man, what better way to celebrate Mother's Day than to thank God for old women? So let's just... Yep. And um, I just... And Naomi's just an incredible woman. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, yes. Thank God for old women. And I have my own happily ever after moment. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in my backyard with my wife and uh, we're having a glass of wine and like the sun was setting on Mount Burdell and I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, gosh, happily ever after we did it. This is so good. Gosh, Ben, you are the man. How did you become so faithful and so steadily to pull off this incredible feat to have a perfect family and the whole deal? Actually, that wasn't my thought at all. I looked across and I thought, how seriously did I get here? Like, oh my gosh. And, uh, and if anyone knows my wife, my wife is incredibly kind and generous and godly. And, and I was trying to think like, oh my goodness, my wife is really the, the, the anchor of our family and her character and her faith and her faithfulness. But how did my wife get to be that way? And I started thinking the old ladies in her life. And I started thinking, well, thank God for Laura Peters. Laura Peters was this ancient woman in my wife's life. And uh, you have to forgive the blurriness. This was right out of our 1997 Presbyterian uh, handbook. Um, you know, the, they had, um, what are they called? Well, phone books back then. They had directories back then. And, um, and my wife, for eight years, met with Laura Peters. 
Now, for whatever reason, somewhere along the line, early on, when my wife started being serious about her faith in 19, she was mentored and discipled by this middle-aged man, middle-aged woman named Joy, who uh, mentored her all through college, ended up officiating our marriage. And, um, and from that point on, my wife has been like, you know what, I'm always going to find old women in my life to listen to, to learn from, to submit to, to get after with. And, uh, and in college, I thought that was cool because Joy was actually a pretty cool older woman. But when she moved to Napa and met with Laura, I was like, where's this going to go? Like, you need someone just a little bit older, not like old, old, you know? And, um, but truth is, Laura is this incredible, godly woman. And anyone who's lived a long time knows that you don't get to be an incredible godly woman because everything just goes perfectly for you. You are an incredible godly woman because you work out your faith in the midst of all the peaks and the valleys of life. Laura, um, Laura's grandson um, died in this fluke, um, in a fluke accident. Her son-in-law committed suicide. Her husband had Parkinson's and she had to be the sole caregiver for him for a while, ended up passing away. Right? She had incredible poverty at some points in her life, incredibly wealth at some points in her life. I mean, she has seen it all. And so for my wife, you know, being 23, and like, hey, let's talk about God. And she wasn't quite like that. But you know what I mean? She's like all idealistic and all excited and all disappointed at the, the, the old people at the church and why they, things weren't happening as quickly as she thought and wanted to work out all this theology and who was right and who was wrong. And Laura's like, oh, God bless you. Right? God bless you. And it wasn't, Laura, it wasn't that Laura was simple. It was just that Laura had depth. She knew her Bible better than anyone I ever knew, and yet she didn't care about predestination, end times, uh, all the different theological debates at the time. She knew that the Bible painted the picture of the story of God and God's goodness and faithfulness and the Holy Spirit that walked with her day in, day out for all of her life. It's incredible. So praise God for old women. And if you're an old woman, praise God for you. So this morning, in this whole, uh, this series, we are looking at extraordinary people. And, uh, and they're ordinary people who God has used to do extraordinary things. And we're going to look at the story of Ruth. But not even Ruth, the story of Naomi. The book should be called Naomi because Naomi is the hero of that story. And she is ordinary, as ordinary can be. And yet because of her character, because of her faith, because of her wisdom... God ended up using her to transform her life, Ruth's life, and actually set in motion more things for the kingdom of God. So if you have your Bible, open your Bible to the book of Ruth, which is right near the beginning of the Bible. All right, and we're going to start right here with Ruth, chapter 1. It says this. In the days when the judges ruled, and uh, Jeff talked about this last week, you have um, the Israelites, they, they, uh, they leave Egypt and they enter into the promised land. And as they enter into the promised land, there's, this, there's this, this period of time where there was no king. There were these judges who ruled over them. This is before there was kings, right, and after, and, and after they were slaves. And so in this time of the judges, um, this is when Naomi uh, and Ruth find themselves. So in those days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of, of his two sons were <clears throat> Mahlon and Kilion, and they were Aphrodites. I practice all morning on these names, and it still doesn't even matter. From Bethlehem and Judah, and they went to Moab, and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she left her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. 
And after they lived there for about 10 years, both Mahalan and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now that feels more like real life than the end of Ruth, happily ever after. What a brutal, in five verses, I mean, it's five verses, and when you read the story of Ruth, it's like, oh, the story of Ruth, there's all this great stuff that we get to, but there's, in these five verses, the amount of death and destruction. There's a famine in the land, right? You, having to go and be refugees, to take all of your belongings and go to this foreign land and set up shop there. To have your husband die, to have your sons die, to have to come back, right? Like, like the amount of death and destruction and sorrow that Naomi must have experienced and must have known is, I think, beyond what most of us could ever understand. And what I love about old women and older women is every older woman I've ever talked to, they understand sorrow. They understand sorrow and grief in a way that you could never understand as a young person. You know, sometimes it's fun working with high school kids. You get to hear about, like, someone didn't get uh, invited to prom and their life is just ruined. And, and it, is. it is. It is ruined. But when you speak to an older woman, you don't get to, like, just tell them how awful that is because that pales in comparison to the death and destruction and the sorrow that women who have lived a long time carry. And it's interesting, like, the way men are, for some reason, we just compartmentalize it and drink or work hard or do something. We just don't even want to deal with it. But for some reason, it's a gift, I guess, that God has given women that they can sit and absorb it, and it molds and shapes and changes their character. And older women have this empathy that is unbelievable. Empathy... Um, um, and this idea of, of not just pointing to somebody and saying, hey, you got to get better, or I, you know, come fix it, It'll, it's going to be okay. But empathy is actually sitting down with somebody and, and, and embracing that moment with them. When someone's having a really hard time, you sit with them. You don't try to fix it, you just listen and you sit with them. But an older woman can identify, not just sit with them, but like they actually can draw on this rich, deep, sorrowful well and can have empathy more than any of us could ever, ever understand. And so a gift for us would be to link arms with somebody, to link up with someone who could experience the depth of empathy that Naomi could experience. So one thing I think is incredible is empathy. And the second is grace. I'm going to go back to this, this, this passage here. It says, In those days um, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, they lived there, and the, but then they, they went to the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech, and they go through the whole thing. And then, but it goes on to say that her two sons married Moabite women. That sounds exotic. Like, who doesn't want to marry a Moabite woman? Um, but what's amazing is, if you are a Jewish person, you do not want to marry a Moabite woman, right? The, like, we think, um, like, racism and tribalism is, like, the core brokenness of the human experience, and especially back, back then, this is like, you know, 13, um, about 1,100 years before Christ, almost three, over 3,000 years ago, so in the ancient um, Near East. So the kind of tribalism, the kind of clanism, the kind of warfare that happened between tribes and the way they hate each other is beyond what we can understand. We get a sense of it, for sure, but it, I mean, it is beyond what we can understand. And so the Moabites... They were the worst. And you know, for, you know when racism is like a huge thing, when you, because we, uh, we, we, we paint pictures, right? We have big stereotypes and generalities that go, all of those people are a certain way. And we dehumanize whole groups of people because they are those way. And we dehumanize them, right? We're free to then feel justified in being self-righteous that we don't associate with those people. Well, the Moabites were those people. And the, the story of the Moabites is incredible. So... 
in Genesis, oops, well, there's this great story um, because it's great because it's not what you'd expect in the Bible um, if you've ever read it. So you have um, Abraham and his nephew Lot, and Lot is living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And in fact, uh, I had this girl living with us. Uh, her parents moved. She lived with us for a while, and halfway through her senior year, she's like, hey, Ben, how do I grow my faith? I'm like, you should read the whole Bible. So like a good kid, she starts reading through the whole Bible. Two weeks later, she comes across this passage of Scripture that I'm going to tell you about. Sodom and Gomorrah, you, you might be familiar with that. Um, it's this awful, awful town. There's all this sin, so God's going to blow up this town. So God blows up the town, but he saves Lot and his family. Lot and his two daughters and his wife, they take their belongings and they get out of town. Well, as they get out of town, the wife dies along the way, and now they find Lot and his two daughters are in this cave in this faraway place, and uh, the two daughters are like, this is the worst, right? You marry within your clan. Your clan are your people. And, uh, and, Lot, um, and Lot's daughters go, oh my goodness, this is awful. There's no one for us to marry. This is the end of our family line. And that's a really big deal for anyone, but especially for them. So they come with this great idea. Let's get our dad drunk and sleep with him, and then we'll be pregnant by our dad, and then we'll be able to carry on the family line. Awesome. My, this girl who's living with us is like, what is this Bible you're making me read? I'm like, oh, let's start with John next time, you know. So, but the deal is, like, that is the story that the Jewish people have told out the Moabites. You know the Moabites? Their whole, those are inbreeders. Like their whole family story started with incest. Those are the Moabites. We want nothing to do with them. And later on in Deuteronomy, it says, you know, you don't intermarry at all. You'll end up worshiping their gods. And when you, and especially the Amorites and the Moabites, those are the two sisters' families, especially them. If, if you marry them, you can't, their kids can't even enter the assembly of God for generations, have nothing to do with them. It's God's word. It's God's word to be like, those are other, we have nothing to do with them. Imagine being a person be like, that's right. God's word tells me that we can completely other a whole group of people. And in the theology, in your head, you go, oh, okay, that makes sense, I guess. But everyone knows who's ever experienced life, that's not how life is. Life is so much more complex than just othering a whole group of people. And so Naomi has these daughter-in-laws who are Moabites. And you just have to imagine the deep shame that must be. She is a daughter of Abraham. She's from Bethlehem. These are her people. And because of all these events that she couldn't control, she ended up in this foreign land. Her sons ended up marrying these foreign women. And she had to find room in her heart to love them, to care for them, to be with them. And I think Naomi had to have been an incredible woman because she could have been like a, um, my grandmother and just writ off, written off anyone who's not like her. I mean, there's old women who are like that. But something about Naomi, whose heart was open to these women, to Or Orpah and to Ruth, that they did not want to leave her. So when they came back to Israel, Orpah and Ruth said, we're going with you. So there's something about the way that Naomi loved them, the way that Naomi extended grace to them, that they were, wanted to be close to her. And I think there's something that, that older women, especially older godly women, the, the, the normal um, boundaries that we thrive on, what makes someone in and what makes someone out, who's acceptable, who's not acceptable. Older godly women have lived long enough, have rubbed shoulders with enough people who understand the grace of God, and they get that those boundaries are not for us. There's so much that the church can learn from Naomi, from older women, to realize that the racism and the ways that we just dehumanize other people to protect ourselves, to protect our righteousness, has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. 
And I love that, that Naomi, for her time, an old woman. This story is even the Bible is just an incredible testimony for the heart of God to love other people. People who are not part of the family are actually part of the family story. So Grace, like, can you really love a Moabite? Naomi's like, yes. And she loves um, Ruth. So Ruth um, and Naomi, um, they move back to Israel. They move back to Bethlehem. And, uh, and if, you, if you're familiar with the story, um, Ruth had to have been beautiful. I mean, the way this whole story plays, like, she was beautiful, and so that's incredible. But if you're a beautiful person on your own, a beautiful widow, you are still a pretty marginalized person. You, are, you're, you, you don't have a lot of options. At best, you can maybe win over one of the harvesters around you, right? And so the way it worked back then is um, these two widows... Um, they, would, they moved back to this area, and uh, when you would go and harvest the land, um, part of the law of God was that you wouldn't just meticulous, uh, meticulously harvest the land, but that you would make space, that you would leave some of the gleanings around so that the, the orphans, the foreigners, the widows could then come and have some food as well. And so Naomi sent out Ruth to go out and collect these gleanings, which was part of kind of like their welfare system at the time. That's what that was. And so she went out there, and as she was out there collecting these gleanings, she catches the eye of Boaz. And, uh, and Ruth, I mean, Naomi goes, oh, Boaz. I know that guy. He's part of our clan. He's part of our people. And, uh, and she, she has this idea. And so um, let's, let's go on um, and read. So here we are. We're going to skip over to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 2 is really just, Na- uh, just Ruth just making eyes at Boaz the whole time. It's, it's great. It's just she just going, you're so great. And he's like, I think you're great, but I don't know what, I know what to do, right? But Ruth chapter 3, Naomi has this incredible plan. It says this. Excuse me. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours, and tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Ruth says, I will do whatever you say. What's interesting is Naomi is a wise woman. You don't get to live that long and not have wisdom. Some wisdom you learn by the school of hard knocks, some wisdom you learn by uh, listening to other people. Um, But by the time you're an older woman, especially if you're an older godly woman, wisdom is the core of who you are. You know how the world works. You know how to get from point A to point B. And Naomi knows exactly the lay of the land. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and her are widows. They have no means for a future. Ruth, thankfully, is really pretty. She's caught the eye of Boaz. But Naomi, I mean, Naomi knows that in their context, there's this thing called a a kinsman redeemer. Yeah, guardian kinsman, whatever. It's a Leverite, uh, a Leverite marriage. And what that means, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, in the Jewish law, was this idea that said if, if, if a, a husband dies, the brother is supposed to then marry that, that woman so that that woman wouldn't be impoverished, but she would then be part of the family. When I was like 19, I'm like, this is awesome. Why isn't that not happening? Now as an older man with a sister and brother-in-law, I'm like, oh yeah, I totally get that. Like, that's a hard thing. Like, no one really wants to marry their, their sisters-in-laws, you know? And so... Um, but the deal was, it was to protect them. It was to say that you are not out there on your own. You are now 
part of this family under my protection. And in fact, if you were going to have kids uh, with this new wife, you, it, that wasn't even your kid. You were passing on your brother's family line. And, um, and, and then it extended from not just your brother, but then extended to your family. And so Naomi knew that there were these kinsmen redeemers in Bethlehem because that was their family. And there was this man who was actually first in line to marry Ruth, if that was going to be how it was going to if that was going to happen. And so Naomi hatches this plan, and Naomi wants Boaz to marry Ruth. And, uh, and this is a weird thing, right, that she says, get dressed up, put on perfume, put on nice clothes, and go and lay at his feet. And everyone, every Bible study I've ever been is like, well, there's this really incredible um, cultural thing that you would go and you would lay down at a man's feet in, in the threshing floor, and it meant that you wanted to be their wife, and they would respectfully say, okay. And it was this whole, like, like mating, I mean, uh, engagement ritual. And, uh, and, and, and some people still believe that, and that definitely could be the case. I came across this one commentary, which kind of makes a little more sense, which basically says this, the threshing floor and the harvest is, everyone's having a big party, Boaz is going to be a little inebriated, and you need to put the moves on. You need to get dressed, put on your best perfume, lie down at his feet, and he'll tell you what to do. And she's like, I will. And if you think about, I mean, in our culture, think about 3,000 years ago, I mean, that seems to make a little more sense. But either way, whether it was this incredible cultural chess move that like gave like, you know, this nod to Boaz and Boaz like, oh, I know what you're doing. Or he's like, listen, trying to seduce Boaz. Ruth knew this, that Boaz was their answer. Boaz had caught Ruth's eye, and if they were going to have a future together, Ruth and Boaz needed to be together. And Boaz needed to fall in love with Ruth and fight for her because Ruth, um, Boaz would have to buy out this other kinsman redeemer, if that makes sense. And so she puts together this plan and, and goes after it. And what I think is incredible about wisdom is older people know what's up. Old people know how to get from point A to point B. And very few young people are willing to listen and go, oh, that's how you get there. We all want to put our hands on the iron and go, oh, you're right, that is hot. But a wise person, a wise older woman knows that this is what to do. And why Ruth is so incredible is Ruth says, I will do whatever you say. And she follows the wisdom of Naomi and ends up getting to marry Boaz and live happily ever after. I think wisdom is this really great thing. I, I, it is such an important thing. Um, but the fact that very few of us listen to wisdom is disheartening. It's disheartening for me personally as, as a dad, as, a, as someone who lives in our time and place, as the church. Like, it is a disheartening thing. But wisdom is the slow and steady doing the right things day after day after day that actually unfolds and allows you the maximum amount of freedom. Right? If you are healthy and you exercise a little bit and you, and you, and you exercise and you eat healthy and you're, all of a sudden you are free to do whatever you want. Just like, hey, I want to go for a run in Yonville. I'm like, oh, sorry, I haven't ran in a year, so I don't get that memory with you. Right? Because I haven't done all the slow and steady things that I need to to get there. A bunch of your friends are like, hey, look, we want to go to this fancy dinner in the city. You're like, oh, I don't have any money to go to that fancy dinner in the city with my friends. Right? But by, if, by being wise and chipping away and saving and doing things, all of a sudden you have this freedom to do these things. And so there are wise people all around us. Older women are for sure wise. And when we submit ourselves to them, listen to them, take their advice, all of a sudden we, we are on this path, um, an opportunity uh, that we would never normally get. Now, the reason why older women, it's great that they have empathy, it's great that they extend grace, it's great that they are wise, but all that is totally meaningless unless we 
actually are faithful and listen to that wisdom. And thus we are faithful at all those small things. So let me wrap this up in, a, in Ruth uh, chapter 4. Uh, we started this at the very beginning. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. But it goes on to say, The woman said to Naomi, Praise be the Lord, who on this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout all of Israel, and he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than the seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in his arms and, carried, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Gosh, that is such, such good news. Naomi, who had this awful life, who had more heartbreak and death and destruction than any of us could bear, who was faithful day in and day out, ends up having this woman, who, this young woman connected to her, who would listen to her, who learned from her, who followed the advice of this wise woman. And in those wise actions, in the faithfulness of the wise actions, day in and day out, God redeemed their family. But not only did God redeem their family, God used them to be a part of the line of David who is in the line, and Jesus is in that line. The Savior of the whole world came through the line of David, came through Ruth. And what's interesting is there's no way Naomi and Ruth thought, man, if we just do it right, God's going to do incredible things through the whole universe forever and ever and ever. Wise and faithful people never think that way. The people who want to be YouTube stars for 10 minutes, that's how they think. And they end up squandering all of their assets because they're reaching for this get-rich-quick thing to be famous for one second, to swing for the fences all in the moment. But the people who are wise day in and day out are part of the faithful story of God. And the reality is that faithfulness causes fruit. In Proverbs chapter 3, it says this, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. And then you will win favor with, uh, and a good name in the sight of God and with men. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lead not on your own understandings. But in all of your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. And what I love about this story about Ruth and Naomi is Naomi submitted to God. Naomi was faithful to God. When, when she was at the end of her rope and her husband died and her sons died, she returned back to the people of God. She wanted to know where life was. Life was back in community, in context with the people of God. Ruth was faithful. Ruth could have done anything she wanted. She could have gone back home, made a way for herself. But Ruth said, you know what, Naomi? Your God is my God. Your people are my people. Where you go, I go. You tell me to lie down at some stranger's feet, I will do it. I am with you. I will be faithful. And because she was faithful, right, God was faithful in that. And Boaz was faithful. Boaz didn't have to marry Ruth. Boaz could have married someone with no baggage, with no issues, could have married a virgin from some other part of the clan, and it would have been great. Instead, he marries a widow who takes on a Leverite uh, vow of the Leverite marriage and takes on all the responsibilities that came with that. And he was a faithful and noble man. He could have taken advantage of Ruth. She could have been his concubine. That could have been a thing. But he was a noble and faithful man. And because of Naomi's faithfulness and Ruth's faithfulness and Boaz's faithfulness, the kingdom of God began to expand, expand even more.
Um, the, the president of our denomination, Gary Walter, has this, this, this saying that I just think is so powerful. And it's simply this. The only way the kingdom of God actually moves forward is through countless faithful acts carried out by countless faithful people. The only way the kingdom of God actually moves forward is through countless faithful acts carried out by countless faithful people. We all want to be the stars. We all want to be at the happily ever after. We all want that moment wherever it goes. That was me right there. But that is not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works by you in this moment, today, being faithful to the, the small things that God has put in front of you. And if all of us here at Marin Covenant, all 400 people that are going to show up at church today, if we're faithful to the thing that God has put in front of us, how dramatic is that going to be? If the thousands of Christians in Marin were faithful to the small things that God has put in front of us today, if the millions of Christians in our country who said we're going to be faithful in the small things, the billions of Christians throughout the world, right? If we just stopped trying to swing for the fences and get our one moment, but just did the faithful things day in and day out, the kingdom of God is going to expand. So my encouragement to you and towards me is that we would be faithful in the small things and that we would hitch our wagons to faithful old women who have been there long before us, who exude empathy and grace and wisdom and faithfulness. And so for me, I thank God for you old women and for the old women in my life and someday hope to be married to an old woman who's going to be that for somebody else. Let me pray for us, and we'll call it a day. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, you are too good. You are so patient. You are so long-suffering. You put up with all of our highs and lows and our temper tantrums. You graciously walk through us through the valley of the shadow of death when we have no idea where you are or what is going on. You form us in all those moments to grow our hearts of empathy, to learn how to extend grace, to all people. You teach us wisdom. Now give us the guts to be faithful, to do the small, slow, and steady things that you've put before us. And may everything we do be for the honor and glory of your son, Jesus, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen.